incredibly difficult passage today we are in, in the book of Genesis. Joseph has climbed his way up from slave to leader of the world. Seven years of feasts have gone on, and now seven years of famine. And during this leadership, Joseph is going to save the world, but set the stage for tyranny. During these next seven years of famine, he will transfer ownership of property from individuals to the government. He will transfer private industry from individuals to the pharaoh. During these seven years, he will transfer the money supply from individuals to the pharaoh. During these seven years, he will transfer ownership and liberty from individuals to the pharaoh. And though he saves the world, he sets the stage for tyranny. Because in Exodus, it says a pharaoh will come along that does not remember Joseph. And yet... He consolidated power during a time of crisis, and the next pharaoh uses all that power to enslave Joseph's relatives for 400 years. And the original reader of Genesis were the group coming out with Moses from the Exodus. And as they're reading, how did we end up in bondage? They would get to this chapter and say, No! Yes, way to go, Joseph, he saved the world. But, oh my goodness, what he did set the stage for our own enslavement for 400 years. So this chapter is such a challenge because it's such a dichotomy. He saves the world through A-plus leadership. Amazing, amazing leadership. And yet it sets the stage for generations to be enslaved because of what he did. So we're going to try and look at both sides. You know, all through history, whether folks are are donkeys or elephants, Christians in general have had a very skeptical view towards centralized power. Because every time centralized power comes around a dictator or a pharaoh or government, usually individual liberties are destroyed because of it. Which is why C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity warns us that basic Christian theology says this. It says that individuals, we believe, last forever. Individuals are eternal. And the state or governments are temporal. Best they last a few hundred years. Maybe a few thousand years as a Chinese dynasty. So the state... The state is not as important as the individual. In fact, the individual is incomparably more important than the state. So the role of the state is to protect individual rights like privacy and property. Your right to speak. Your right to freedom. He says if Christianity is true, then the individual is not only more important, but incomparably more important than the state. He is everlasting, and the life of the state is only a moment. In fact, when God is leading the people out of Egypt, the the folks reading Genesis, he tells them that in order for them to be free, though they have not owned anything for 400 years, he spends 20% of the Ten Commandments to address property rights. In fact, if you were to contrast free enterprise from, say, communism or Marxism or socialism, the one thing these three things have in common is abolish private property. Free enterprise, through the Ten Commandments, God said, no, 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 you can't give away stuff you don't own. I want you to be generous. It starts with property. In fact, when you own stuff, you're more responsible with it. You're more generous with it. 
So he says in the Ten Commandments, do not steal other people's property. Do not covet other people's property. Twenty percent of what God instructed the people on how to be free was how to have property. Because he knew for 400 years they hadn't had it. And yet, if that's true, then how do you explain what he's done? There's a great book on this. Not mine, actually. If you want to go more into the, uh, to the free enterprise aspect, um, my book, Godonomics, is about that. But on the flip side, in his book, um, David Jeremiah, The Coming Economic Apocalypse, it's a commentary on Revelations, he addresses this very chapter we're going to look at today. And says, okay, well, he sets the stage for tyranny, and the Bible warns against that. But why would he do it? And how do we look at the good side of what Joseph did here in this passage? He mentions a few things. One, by the end of the 14 years, Joseph has set up a flat tax system where the people only have to pay 20% taxes. And he flipped it to a renter's economy. So if you were owning property in Egypt at the end of the famine, you paid 20% of your money for the government's payroll, but you got to keep 80%. And it was a a landlord economy that, that Joseph's going to flip it to, where the government takes care of all your expenses of your land, and you only have to pay them 20%. And he mentions that in Mesopotamia at that time, all the foreign areas, the areas around Egypt, were charging 60 to 80% taxes to their citizens. So Joseph is far, far lower burden, much more liberty than the, foreign, than the other nations. Also, at the end of the uh, seven-year period of famine, he gives them seed back in hopes that they can work their way back toward liberty. Last thing he mentions in the book is that none of these ideas were Joseph's. He only responds to them suggesting these ideas. So we're going to dive into it. He saves the world, but he sets the stage for tyranny. And I want to focus specifically on what he did right, though we'll address the bad stuff as we go. Because what's amazing to me is that Joseph, over and over and over again, impacts a world that believes differently from him, Totally different value system, totally different set of gods, and he does it through his work. Think about how does he impact Potiphar? He's not sharing his faith. He's a hard worker. It's his A-plus work that gets Potiphar interested in his A-plus God. Why is the prison guard interested in in Joseph? Because his A-plus work gives him a platform that this prison guard wants to know about his A-plus life. Why is the Pharaoh interested in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Because he sees Joseph work his organizational skills, his leadership skills, and says, well, I want to know a God and a life like that. And that, I think, through all the complicated parts of this passage, is the application for us today, is if you do A-plus work Monday through Friday, everyone, people who don't even believe the way you do, are going to be interested in your A-plus life. But... If you do C-plus work, no one's going to be interested in your C-plus life. So what does it look like for us to give our very best to living out this eternal life in a group of people in a world that doesn't even believe the way we do so that folks will, will be attracted to the God that energizes us, the God who motivates us, the God who lives in us? And how can we use our platform of work, of life, to create leverage to put God on display? I want to look at four aspects of the A-plus work that that, uh, Joseph does. First one, Joseph gives A-plus leadership during very failing times. There was no bread in the land. The famine was very severe. The land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. So it's bad. It's really bad. So Joseph gathered up all of the money that was found in the land of Egypt. 
and in the land of Canaan. Everyone's poured in every amount of money they have so they can get the land, the, the bread that he's holding. For the grain which was bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money had failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, no, the Egyptians say it, give us bread. Why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. And here we go. The money has failed here. The money has failed here. Well, there's been several times in history where money through hyperinflation or other pieces have failed. And it's caused chaos. The Weimar Republic or Zimbabwe or other places like that. And there's been turmoil. There's been, you know, the streets have been filled with chaos and havoc. And Joseph gives incredible leadership during a very, very, very difficult time in the world's history. And he keeps there from being turmoil. He keeps there from being chaos. He leads people through this very difficult time when the money failed. Reminds me a little bit, if you haven't read uh, his book before, about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We have several copies out there. But Bonhoeffer lived during a time when the money failed. The Weimar Republic had hyperinflated their currency to the point at which you would take wheelbarrows of money and it was cheaper to burn money in your fireplace than it was to buy paper. It was so worthless. Well, Bonhoeffer was living during this time and he was a Doogie Hauser of his day. He got a, his doctorate degree when he was 21 and he did his doctoral work on what is the church. And he determined the church was not a building. It's not ritual. The church is a group of individuals forgiven by God, filled up with his presence, Greek and Jew, rich and poor, transcending all socioeconomic lines that are committed to putting God on display. But because of the economic turmoil going on in Germany, with the money failing, he ends up heading over to New York. He's in New York. He loves New York. He's experiencing the jazz music of the era. But he is shell-shocked at the terrible preaching. He says, I'm listening to the sermons in, in New York, in, in America, and they were totally devoid of doctrine, totally devoid of anything concrete. They didn't have boldness. They talked about good deeds, but they didn't connect those good deeds to the, to the good theology of what motivates us to do the good deeds. So he's very frustrated. Well, he ends up going to uh, another part of Manhattan to go to a couple black churches, which he'd never attended before. And he heard black gospel music for the first time. And he, as a German Lutheran, is enthralled that people could worship like we just worshipped here, with passion toward God. And he falls in love with black gospel music. More than that, he says the best preaching he heard anywhere in America was coming from these pulpits, where these churches were committed to good deeds, but a commitment to God as sovereign. Jesus is Lord. The Bible is true. That there was power in the pulpits, he said. Well, as he made his way through Germany, uh, through America, he started heading south and visiting different churches. And again, he was shocked as he got to the southern states to find that American white Christians were owning or looking down upon or degrading black Christians or blacks in general. As a guy who wrote a doctrinal thesis on the church that transcends culture, he was shocked that Christians could think that racism could anyway be justified. And he got to feel it with his friends when he'd go to a, uh, a restaurant. He'd feel the racism himself. Well, then he heads back to Germany. So he heads to Germany. The Germans post-World War I had this national shame. They had this money economy that had dropped. And so they were looking for a savior. And so they were looking for a Fuhrer. Before Hitler came to power, they said, we need just one man to be in charge. We need one person. Jesus, send us a Fuhrer, the churches were saying. So he shows up. He's like, guys, we don't want that. We believe that individuals are inherently sinful. First Samuel chapter 8 says that you, you, they ask people for a king. God said, forewarn them. You don't want a king-sized government. He takes what's yours and makes it his. 
He mentions Ahab taking the vineyard from Naboth. He says, guys, the idea of a furor is a bad news. We don't want centralized power. Well, he says this long before Hitler takes the reins. Hitler comes along using the money supply that had failed. He promises um, morality change, getting them out of their shame. He promises a, a commitment to morality. All the churches are getting in bed with Hitler to take the ascent up. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer is pounding the pulpit and the churches are like, be quiet, don't talk about this. And ultimately, you know what happened. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer has become a symbol of a leader who led the church to actually try and assassinate Adolf Hitler because of the evil he was doing during difficult times. Incredible leadership. Moving from pacifism to trying to destroy Hitler himself during a time when the money supply failed. And you think about how many leaders have had the boldness to speak up during challenging times. Like Joseph did and like Bonhoeffer did. Well, the people come to him and after he gives them some leadership, they, he says, all right, Joseph gives us A plus resourcefulness. All right, what are we going to do? The money supplies failed. So Joseph said, all right, here's what we'll do. I got bread. You don't have money. You give me your livestock and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money's gone. And like, oh, great idea. Now, keep in mind, your livestock was like private industry. When you had a cattle or sheep, that was not only your supply for today, but that was your machine to make more sheep, more cattle. That was your source of milk. That was your source of food. Suddenly, what they're trading for bread is their resourcefulness. What they're trading for bread is their industry. Now, you can imagine if you're Pharaoh and you suddenly have all the industry transferred to you, you're like, I like this, Joseph. Because Pharaoh's getting richer and richer while the people are getting poorer and poorer. But Joseph is incredibly resourceful. It's got A-plus resourcefulness, though it sets the stage for tyranny. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for horses and flocks and cattle and donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. But they got through another year. And the people you're going to find out love Joseph for this. Well, he moves from resourcefulness to innovation. So that year comes to an end and things are getting worse. So they came to him again, the Egyptians the next year and said to him, man, we can't hide from my Lord. The money's gone. Oh, and we, you own all of our herds and you own all of our livestock. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our lands. That's all we have is our body and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? So here's the deal we want to make with you. You buy us into slavery and you buy our land and give us bread that we in our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die and the land may not be desolate. And Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. Every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was so severe upon him and the land was Pharaoh's. Now, do you feel the tension? In one sense, this guy is saving the world. He has come up with an innovative way to solve the problem on year two when there's no money. On the other hand, you're like, oh no, this is not going to end well. But Joseph has got to figure out in his innovation how to flip the economy from an ownership economy to a renter economy. So look at what he does in the next verse. As for the people, he moves them into cities, away from their land, because now he's going to work the land, from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. The whole central planning of moving people from being out in the country to living in cities. Total change. Incredible economic flip. 
Only the land of the priests he did not buy. Now, this is where you see his real brilliance in protecting his people. If you remember a couple chapters ago, he made sure that his brothers and family got settled up in Goshen. Why Goshen? Well, Goshen, it, it hints at it, this text, was owned by the priests, meaning the Egyptian priests. And look what it tells us. The land that his family is on is the land the priests didn't buy. The priests had rations, a lot of them, by Pharaoh. Meaning no matter what happened to the priests, they were giving them food. That was sort of part of their deal with the Pharaoh. So they ate their rations, which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not have to sell their lands of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his descendants who went to Egypt. Because Joseph knew in advance that there was going to be seven years of feast and seven years of famine. And when his family came, before the feast was in the year three, four, five, six, seven, he purposely gave them the land that he knew would be secure for the future. So they don't sell the land. And Joseph turns to the people who have just traded themselves in their land and says, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here's seed for you and you shall sow the land. He says, okay, now I'm the landlord. I own the land. We're going to flip to a renter's economy where I take care of the, the expenses of the land and you just pay me 20% to operate it, but you keep 80%, which gets to the next part of the verse. So it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth, as that flat tax he sets up, to Pharaoh. But four-fifths shall be your own. Now keep in mind, this was unprecedented in the world. Most people were taxed 60% or 80%. He's only taxing 20%. And you will use the seed for your field and for your food, for those of your household and food for your little ones. So he says, I want you to be self-sustaining. I want you to take the 80% and provide for yourself, provide for your family. You can manage and be responsible as the tenant as I'm the landlord, I'll take the expenses. And look how they treat him. Oh, they say, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord. We will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it law over the land of Egypt to this day. Now keep in mind, this day is written 400 years later. This flat tax flip of the economy stays in place for 400 years. That Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. And that's what's interesting to me is he pretty much says, hey, uh, my family's not going to do that nonsense. We're not going to give up our land. We're not going to give up our industry. We're not going to give up our money. But Egyptians, if you want to do it, I'll make a deal with you. But I want my family to actually be industrious and entrepreneurial as they're moving forward. So as you read this, it's just it's so shocking to me to see how this all plays out. And yet... On the good side, look at how the Egyptians, who believed in totally different gods, love this guy who rescued their family and their livelihood and their future. How many people in our lives are looking at the way we're living, the way we're leading, our resourcefulness and our innovation, and they are saying, wow, this is A-plus work. I want to know about your A-plus faith, your A-plus life. Tell me about that. I want what you have. Because I couldn't have figured out how to do this in this economy. I couldn't have figured out how to lead through this difficult time in life. You know, we have, uh, I haven't given you an update last six months about uh, our son Quinn. So about six months ago, we wanted to help him try and learn how to speak. And, you know, several folks over the last couple of years have been well-intended and said, hey, he's going to speak when he's ready. But the reality is with autism, that's not really true. You either pull him or push him into speaking so we got a speech therapist who uh, came in and started working with Quinn for the last four or five months. And her work ethic is amazing. Wednesday night, 
we're trying to figure out if he's got a labeling problem or a scrolling problem or a speaking problem. And she's just like a bloodhound detective. We're going to figure out, is it a word? Is it a letter? We're just digging into this thing. I'll give you an example of sort of a, a day in the life of having a son with autism. So uh, we, he, he can now jump the fence. So we lose him. He jumps the fence in the backyard, and we can't find him. And he doesn't respond to his own name. So, so this panic that, that kicks in. And then later that day, you know, hey, has anybody seen Quinn? No. Check upstairs. And he's gone into our bathroom, turned on the, the water, filled up the tub, and is swimming with all his clothes on in the tub. But thank goodness there's a volunteer here in our church, our friend Shannon, who's taught him how to swim. So we clean up the bathroom. We get that all fixed. And then later on that day, we're making some dinner. Where's Quinn? I don't know. We go back upstairs. Does it again with all his clothes. We call, we're cleaning everything, cleaning it back up, put all the clothes back in. Later that night, a third time, he fills that thing up. And we're just like exhausted from this. And just the wear and tear. So I went and bought locks for all the doors. He's five, but you know, with locks on everything. And just, it wears you out. And yet, over the last six months, a combination of volunteers who volunteer here in our children's ministry, who, who teach my son how to speak uh, during our 1110 service and our, and our Saturday service, uh, volunteers like Shannon who come to our house and give us a break as a family and work with Quinn on swimming lessons, work with him on speaking, and this tenacious work ethic of the speech therapist that we have, I am just so thrilled, thankful that four months having started this thing, Quinn is now talking and his talking, like in the morning, I'll get up and say, what's this? Shirt. What's this? Shirt. No, it's a shoe. Shoe. What's this? Pants. And we go down for, for, uh, for breakfast, and I'll say, what's this? Bacon. Uh, I couldn't be more proud as a dad that my son, one of his words, he's only got 20 words, one is bacon. But when you, when you model a kind of servanthood and others-focusedness and commitment to excellence, I'm telling you, I'm drawn to people who live that kind of compassionate life. I think in the same way, in the midst of these difficult times, the Egyptians are drawn to this work ethic and this innovation and this problem-solving and this move-forwardness that Joseph offers. In fact, Martin Luther really redeemed the gospel. He really refound the main message of the gospel, but he also went pretty nuts. If you read his readings at the end of his life, Hitler actually used Martin Luther's anti-Semitic writings to get the Lutheran church on board with him early on as he was raising up the, uh, the third rank. But before, and we don't know if he had Alzheimer's at that point. We don't know if he went crazy or if he just went off the deep end. But this is a guy who was foundational to faith. And during those years before he sort of went crazy, he said something amazing about work and using your platform of work to draw people to Christ. He said, God is loving other people through the baker and the butcher. God provides for the needs of people in the culture through you when you work. Therefore, when you work, Monday through Friday, you are wearing the very mask of God. Have you ever thought about what you do Monday through Friday as work and worship? That God is loving other people through what you do and how you honor them and how you appreciate them and how you serve them? You're worshiping through your work. In fact, the word for vocation comes from a Latin word, vocar, which means to call. That people used to think about their vocation as a calling. God, sure, I'm going to worship on Saturday or Sunday, whichever I do. But what I really want to do is, what are you calling me to do to worship you through my job? How can I worship Monday through Friday by how I serve people, how I honor people, how I help people, how I serve people, how I fight for justice for people? How can I, God, be, be called to something of value? Do you see your job as a calling to worship God? Not a few hours a week, but every day of your life? 
I love what John Wesley said. He said a biblical view of, of economics is to gain all you can, then save all you can, and give all you can. What a healthy way to think about money. Oh, yeah, I want to gain all I can. I want to use all the talents and opportunities God's given me. I want to save because I want to prepare for the future, just like Joseph did. But I also want to be as generous as possible to those around me. Worship through your work. I want you to see this quick video that really pushes us to think about what it means to do A-plus living so people are attracted to our A-plus life. Let's watch. Work. Most of us spend over half our lives at work. Whatever it is you fill the 9 to 5 with, planting crops, building cars, taking care of patients, teaching students, or running a business, work is where most of life happens. For some, work is a drain. They dread Monday morning, forcing themselves to struggle through because they need the paycheck, while many times feeling trapped and beaten down by their job. Some people love their work. They're good at what they do. It energizes them. It's a place of security, a place to chase dreams, desires, and success. At work, they find fulfillment. We often forget to connect our faith to our work. We don't consider the reasons God may have us at our job. We don't think about the purpose and meaning we could bring to our work. We simply focus on how it makes us feel. But what if we saw our work as an opportunity to worship? As Christians, we are called to serve Christ with our lives. For a few, that means working as a pastor, a youth minister, or a missionary. Others serve the church by teaching children or singing in the choir. But when Sunday is over, most of us return to our jobs outside the church. For us, our mission is in the marketplace. We may not be the kind of missionary who moves to the far regions of Africa, but around the conference table, around the water cooler, around the cubicle, we have an opportunity to worship the God who created us. We don't see a divide between Sunday and Monday, between the sacred and the secular. We've been invited into parts of the world that a pastor or traditional missionary will never see. We have conversations with people who would never set foot in a church. Whether we love or dread our work, we choose to turn the focus away from ourselves and toward the mission God has for us. Church is not the only place we worship, and Sundays are not the only days in our calendars that have meaning. Every day on mission for God brings us great joy. Like the heroes before us, we can be modern-day Noahs and Josephs and Peters who are called with a purpose. God has designed us. He created us to work and to worship. For us, work is worship. A few months ago, I got a chance to meet someone who was doing this on a national stage like Joseph was. I was invited to speak at a conference uh, down in Orlando a few months ago. And uh, they got really desperate because everybody else people knew about, you know, guys from Chick-fil-A, Hobby Lobby. And then this guy was the former president of South Korea. And then I was on the docket. So I was on my way down to the uh, room to speak, and I have my usual gadgets with me. I got my fire Bible and my inflammatory uh, gas that's going to go in my fire Bible that burst flames out. I've got a smoke machine. And I'm walking down the hallway to the green room. And the uh, former president of South Korea steps out of a, a meeting that he had, and he's right there standing next to me with his secret service. And I'm thinking, I am about to be thrown in jail for having explosives right next to the former president of South Korea. And the two guys who had the meeting with him are looking at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, I just happened to be coming down this hall when you guys came out of the meeting, and they're taking pictures with him, and the secret service you know, didn't notice the explosives I had in my hands. Uh, so I made it fast, and I got to go in that night and hear him speak about growing up in absolute poverty in South Korea and how his mom wouldn't let him beg but taught him 
and his five bo- four brothers how to work selling just little trinkets to make just a penny a day because his mom wanted him to be an entrepreneurial mindset, even though they were really poor. She'd get up every day at five in the morning, I think it was, and pray for each one of the boys by name. He was the youngest. He said he had to get up at five, even though the prayer didn't get to him until 530. And the mom's prayers got shorter and shorter with each one of the kids. But mom's faith so inspired him. He worked his way uh, through, through life, really. He got this job as a street sweeper. And he would clean the streets. And the work ethic his mom put in him is that he would clean the streets, fill up his bucket, and he had to walk that bucket five miles to dump it and then come back again. And that's how he worked his way through school and, and into college. Then he got a job at Hyundai, starting at the very bottom of the, of the corporation. And he worked his way up from the very bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the company to the point at which he was CEO of Hyundai. And has a, a higher GT, GDP than the entire country of South Korea. And then he took this massive pay cut to go from Hyundai to president of South Korea. But he felt like God was calling him into the business, into the political community, to serve the people. And today, if you compare North Korea with its communism and its nonsense and the oppression on people to South Korea, he was winning an award at this event because of the way in which he has made freedom and expression of Christianity and entrepreneurship, changing that country from the, from the inside out. And he was so humble and gave so much credit to God and to his mom for leading him during those times. I thought, what would it look like for each of us to look at the resources we have, the influences we have, our lifestyle, and say, God, use me. I want to make sure people are seeing that A-plus commitment to live for you, and they're drawn to my A-plus God. That's what strikes me about the last part of the passage. You get to see Joseph offering this A-plus wealth management during failing times. So the camera switches from Egypt, which is now impoverished and lost everything to Pharaoh, the camera switches back to Goshen and how Joseph is offering them a little bit different wisdom. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions. <laughs> in contrast to the folks who gave up all their possessions and all their industry, Joseph's like, now listen, we're not doing that nonsense. Now they offered, I did it, Pharaoh loves me for it, but we're not getting rid of our liberty. We're not getting rid of our property. So they had possessions. And the result of that was they grew and multiplied exceedingly. We got prosperity going on in the midst of poverty in the country. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years during this time. And the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. And he turns to his son at the end of his life. And the time drew near for him to die. He called his son Joseph and said, Now if I found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh. It's like a pinky swear or a handshake. Deal kindly and truly with me. Please, do not bury me in Egypt. Let me live with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt. Bury me in their burial place back in Canaan where I'm from. And he says, I will do as you said. He says, swear to me. He swore to him. And Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. This idea is where the New Testament writers get the idea of being a sojourner. We are residents of one land living in another land. Jacob said, I'm not from Egypt. I'm living here. I'm leveraging it. I'm blessing the Pharaoh while I'm here. I'm going to try and use my time in Egypt to live an A-plus life that draws people to God. But I'm not from here. And I'm not going to reside here. And I don't want to end up here. And the New Testament writers say in the same way, we are citizens of heaven. And we have been planted into our own Egypt, which is this world for the short time and short opportunity. 
But we don't we don't become attached to this place. In fact, because we are sojourners or we're just passing through, we can suddenly be very generous with our lives, generous with our time, generous with our money. We're sojourners. Our ultimate treasures are in heaven. Our ultimate burial place is in in another land. So while I reside here, God, give me the wisdom. Give me the leverage to use my time and my platform and my resources to draw people to you. We're sojourners. And the ultimate wealth management is that. To live in this world and to live in this life saying, God, you've entrusted me with so much How do I use what you've given me to change the world in your name, knowing that I will not be buried here? I will live in the world that I was made to reside in, my heavenly citizenship. What would it look like if all of us saw our time and our money through that lens? Or begin to say, I want to do A-plus work, so everyone who doesn't believe the way I do will be drawn to my A-plus life. And I begin to look at areas in my life where I'm given a halfway effort to, to living a joyful life, a halfway effort to living a patient life, a halfway effort to living a generous life. And I say, and I'm doing C-plus work there. And no one would want my C-plus life. God, what does it look like for me to go all out to give you everything I have, not for, for, for a sense of works, but a sense of I want to please you with everything you've entrusted to me? I wrote this question down a month ago as I was thinking about this message. Am I living the life I'm inviting other people into? We talk about the abundant life and what it means and you want to get to heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But are you living a life that other people would be drawn toward? If people look at the way you talk, would they be drawn toward it? If people look at the way you give, would they be drawn toward it? If people look at the way you're patient, uh, the commitment you have to your marriage, to loving your spouse, to prioritizing your spouse, to prioritizing your kids, to being patient with your kids. Do I have joy in all things? See, I got F circumstances at times and D circumstances at times. But am I living an A plus joy in the midst of that that draws other people? The way I affirm and encourage other people, does that draw others to say, well, I'd like to have a boss like that. I'd like to have a husband like that. I'd like to have a father like that. My modeling of his patience as a parent, is it A plus? My excellence in customer service, my excellence in committing to other people and doing what's right at work, my grace at work. How I forgive those who've hurt me. Is it A plus effort? It's hard. It's difficult. But I want to model the forgiveness that will draw people to the ultimate forgiver. And what about the attitude of my leadership? But that question was very convicting for me. But I want people to know my A plus God. To a broken vessel that's me. So my commitment, my challenge to you is to ask yourself, are you living the life that you're inviting other people into? Having said that, this chapter was very challenging, and you say, wow, that, I've never even thought of it that way. So a few resources if you want to dig into it. Again, that Bonhoeffer book is back there. Uh, the Coming Economic Armageddon, if you want to read into that, addresses Joseph specifically. And then Godonomics also addresses some of those pieces as well. But the challenge, I think, for all of us is, God, use my platform to proclaim your name. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for Joseph's story. Thank you for the incredible wisdom he had during difficult times. God, give us the wisdom for our difficult times to make you known. For you, the ultimate God who came from a comfortable place and came to reside here for a temporary time. And you were incredibly generous with your life and offered forgiveness to us that changed the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See you all next week.